simply the full light, if it's possible. I mean, if it's available. Okay, more or less. <laughs> still a touch of. Yes, still on the screen. Yeah. Oh, yeah, still. Yeah. Okay, uh, now I'm here, I talk. That's good. Okay, okay, I'll do it. Uh, just give a brief improvisation, a couple of points, and then we can engage in something like democratic discussion. <laughs> okay, uh, as you must have seen, this is a crazy movie if there ever was one. No? And uh, it's very nice to focus on these movies. Uh, like it would be nice to be a whole to do a whole series once precisely of these weird Hollywood movies. Like the only one, one of those, okay, there are many, compares in weirdness to this one is there is from late seventies, I think, a movie with Charles Bronson. He died already, I think, that actor of cheap westerns and so on. The title is something from from noon till three or whatever. It's and my friend who will talk tomorrow on Latin Dollar who is here wrote a couple of pages on it. It's absolutely unique. Namely, I cannot resist telling you briefly the story. It's about it's a western, but the most weird western that you can imagine, about a bank robbery with or some robbery which goes wrong, and then Charles Bronson escapes sheriff or whoever uh, uh, pursuing him into a big house where a lone widow played by his wife Jill something whatever I forgot lives so then she threatens if she will not remain quiet to rape her but then of course it's an old male chauvinist times basically she provoked him to rape her to make love and so on and then he and then they catch him he disappears. The years later, I even forgot, is it from prison or simply he returns back to this town, Charles Bronson, and discovers that the woman built a whole mythology about that encounter, that she wrote a book with the same title from noon till three. Uh, everything is the same as it happened. A stranger came, they made love passionately, the only thing that changes is that in her melodramatic story, uh, he is killed at the end. Then, you know, and you have, she is a legend because of that novel. You have uh, organized tours of the house and she takes this tour and at the end she stays behind and tells her, you know that I am that guy. And then it's absolutely incredible for Hollywood. I mean, what happens is that <coughs> she, he tells her, I know many details, I will convince you that I am the guy. He said, you know, we did this after making love. She says, oh, this is in my book, you could have read it there. Another detail there, then he said, okay, I will give you the last proof, the shape of my penis. And he puts his pants down and she has to admit that's it. Then she uh, takes with her gun pistol and aim, aims at him and then of course the camera moves back you see here a shot she preferred to kill herself than to exchange meat from reality to admit that this miserable guy 
was her great lover and then he escapes and wanders around and tries to convince people because her book is still a bestseller that he is that mythic lover and then uh, nobody of course they laugh at him nobody believes him so at the end he is taken to a psychiatric asylum to a madhouse where he tells the truth you know i'm that guy from a novel and others say of course i believe you may i present to you i'm napoleon julius caesar is there and so on and so on and he is happy there in the asylum i mean i, I haven't seen a totally crazy strangest film and so on and since we are here with architecture the movie which comes pretty close to this one is my favorite I made a test with you. Who is the greatest American writer of 20th century, although not of American origins? It's of course Ayn Rand. No? Did you see Fountainhead? You should. It's a crazy movie. One of the craziest. But what makes it even stranger is that you know it's about an architect, lone individualist, blah blah. But you know that uh, why I have a soft spot for her. The link is that. Did you notice in this movie also the weird logic of architecture? How you, you have this probably Hungarian countryside and so on, and then at the very place of trenches in World War One, obviously between Austrian uh, the battlefield on one side in World War One the Great War Austrian army on the other side uh, the Russian army, you have this totally somewhere between Russian constructivism, modernism and Frank Lloyd Wright, this totally modernist building. And here things get ambiguous, allow me for a moment to dwell with Ayn Rand with Fountainhead, because all, you know, her staunch anti-communism and so on, you know. But if you forget about Frank Lloyd Wright, and you, uh, if you ask who was the model for Howard Roth, obviously, and if you ask yourself, uh, the architecture done by Howard Roth, at least in the movie version, you know, Gary Cooper plays it, uh, which is the nearest architectural association? I came again, uh, Soviet modernism, constructivism of the 20s. This is a nice scene to let the most staunch... Okay, now you will say, I'm dreaming. No, it's much more complex. You can find it now, it's a little bit difficult through Amazon, you can get it. They discovered now that the first movie version of Ayn Rand was shot in 42 in Italy. Now, if you're interested in cinema, this is something weird. Because do you know that 41 and 42 were golden years of Italian cinema. Yeah, yeah, there was Mussolini, but Mussolini had his oldest son, Vittorio Mussolini, who was, as far as you can imagine, a relatively good guy. And they even, and Mussolini was not Hitler. They tolerated some, even leftists there. The idea was, you do your cinema criticism, you do the movies. So another great movie from that era, which if you love cinema, maybe know it, is L'Ossessione, Early Visconti, Obsession, which is excellent. It's the first version of The Postman always rings twice. You know, the second version is probably the most famous one. It's from 45, 46, I think, with uh, Lana Turner, no, and I think John Garfield, who is truly, I'm sorry if I associate a little bit, I'm just trying to throw 
beats a tear of association. It's like John, Johnny Garfield is a leftist tragedy of Hollywood, you know. He was the big leftist actor, hero, and then the late 40s, early 50s, they put pressure on him. Like, admit your communist links, whatever, the blacklist, otherwise, and it's a very tragic story. He was this staunch hero of leftist progressive movies. He broke down, he wrote a text how I was duped by communists, and then he simply couldn't live with this, his heart stopped, he died out of literally broken heart because of shame a couple weeks ago. So he plays the guy there, Lana Turner, the Fatal Beauty. And, but then you have the last version, maybe it's better known to you, with Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lane. That version is a little bit obscenity, of obscenity, it's my nature. It's, you know, for what it is famous. When I was young, we played this game, and it's a serious game. I even contacted some producers whom I know by chance, like James Seamus, who was now the boss of the boss of as the boss of Focus Pictures. We played this game. There was a rumor, one of Hollywood mythologies, that there are a couple of sex scenes in movies where the actors really did. And if you saw this last version of Postman Always Rings Twice, the first time they make passionately love on a, on a, on a kitchen table. This is one of the myths that the two of them, Jack Nicholson and Jessica Link, really did it. But what I want to say is that by far the best version is the first one. Still the best. It's immensely watchable. It's incredible that they were allowed to do it. And at the same era, they did Noi Mi Vivi, the title We the Living, which is the first big novel by Ayn Rand. And that, I think, is a key, a hidden truth of her later, because it is, again, staunchly anti-communist and so on, but in a much more ambiguous way, it's a beautiful, tragic melodrama. You have, it's the story of, this is the first version of that beautiful star, Alita Valley, Italian, where her most famous roles are maybe, if you saw Carol Reed with Orson Welles, the third man. She's the beautiful actress there. Uh, and uh, she plays a young girl of nobility, now impoverished, who in the early 20s in Soviet Union tries to study, but is ostracized because of being of uh, noble origins. And she loves an impoverished nobleman. And then somehow she succeeds in enrolling into the university course, and there she meets a slightly older man who studies, is an honest communist, even more, he is an uh, officer of GPU, that is to say, how KGB or even Cheka was called, like, secret police. And then the story takes a strange turn. Okay, I will not lose time, we are not talking about that, but what I want to say is that at the end, it turns that the Nobleman gets corrupted and part of the new Stalinist elite emerging. This guy, it's one of the beautiful melodramatic moments of emotions. It's shot so nicely. Uh, at a certain point, she tells him, because of some complications, like, I never loved you. I just allowed you to touch me. To, uh, and now you can kill me, imprison me in your horrible communist prisons. And he looks at her and says, I will never pardon myself. And you think he will say, for falling in love with a traitor like you? No, he says, for making you suffer, that I didn't see that you suffer. And 
when she tells him, screw you, I never loved you, I love that poor guy who is at that point arrested in prison because he was really, it's not yet a Stalinist plot, doing some uh, 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 black market smuggling, he organizes so that they, they release him, her lover, from prison, and then he goes to some commissars and he, a communist, makes the first of these, you know, John Gold speeches and then kills himself. It's incredible how, you know, okay, he breaks as a communist at the end, but nonetheless, the only absolutely honest, tragical figure is an ex-communist. And again, here you see, I think, this hidden ambiguity in her work. Because I think that again, even in Fountainhead, the architecture is communist. And uh, we could also have gone here, you know more than architecture, of, about architecture than I do, of course, but into all the political ambiguity. Remember, this weird villa is on the edge of Hungary, bordering to the territory which was Russian territory in World War I. Uh, uh, Boris Karlov, that is to say, Hjalmar Brzezik, I love these weird names that they have, he was supposed in World War I to betray to Russia. He is, in other words, although of course the war was still mostly fought in Chinese terms, but it's clear that he is a kind of a communist modernist, if you want, no? And uh, Verdegas, that is to say, Bela Lugosi is traditional. European nobility, a totally opposed figure, uh, opposed to the first one, and so on and so on. So I think that, and I will try to prove it now in the concluding part of my brief improvisation, that this really is a movie which in its crazy way, and there are, if you know, for example, classical music, I didn't note it now, I listened carefully to it. This was only possible in Hollywood in those pre code years. If you know classical mu music, the music is here incredible. It's a little bit arranged in a little bit kitschy way, except from very good uh, uh, classical music. For example, I recognized at some point, not even, it's not only big kids like Tchaikovsky symphonies and so on. At some point, it was a very exquisite piece, not so universally known, Schumann String Quartet, the second movement and so on. It's quite incredible, all this. So again, we have all this, uh, obviously, political background. It can also be read, of course, in a naive American way as a trouble, sorry, tr uh, trouble initiation, you know. An innocent American couple confronts the darkness, the old conflict of Europe, uh, and so on, and so on. So now I come to my central point. I think what fascinated me in this film is the idea of bringing the two early horror movie megastars, that is to say, uh, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, together. Because, I'm sorry if some of you were at my classes here and let me know the theory, but for me, it's, you know, it pisses me off as an old-fashioned leftist to hear this bullshit how like you still dream about class struggle, where, haha, we are over that. Well, my answer is, you may think this, but Hollywood more and more is all about class struggle. I mean, it's almost difficult to find a new blockbuster which is not somehow, in a pretty obvious way, about class struggle. 
Hunger Games, uh, The One Beach, the idea was good, but it didn't quite work with Matt Damon, Elysium, and so on and so on. And my idea is that in the horror movies, class struggle is precisely translated as the struggle between vampires and zombies, the undead. Vampires are clearly the ruling aristocracy, you know, they're usually, you know, talking this uh, refined way, high manners and so on, moving among us. Zombies come from outside. They attack us, they move or the undead in this clumsy way. They are the ultimate proletarians and so on. And uh, uh, like no longer Frankenstein, who is a proletarian machine going mad, I mean the monster of Frankenstein, of course, was Boris Karloff. On the other hand, as you know, Bela Lugosi was, his mega hit was just a year before they did this movie, the first Dracula. There is another key to this class dimension. Do you know that there is a movie shot, I think so, maybe I'm wrong, 32 or 3, a year later than this one, White Zombie. This is, I think, as far as Hollywood could have gone, it's almost ridiculous, you know, into class struggle. It's, uh, he doesn't play a vampire, Bela Lugosi, there, but an owner of a sugar factory somewhere in Louisiana, I think, or even Haiti directly, and he receives some guests and present them his factory. And you see there the living dead zombies working. And he says, look, it's wonderful. They never demand any workers' rights. You don't have any problems with work hours. They don't care about security, trade union rights, and so on, health. They just work and work and work. It's done so openly, no wonder, immediately, two years afterwards, with Hayes Code, this movie was... Uh, it disappeared. It was censored, it disappeared. And again, uh, you really have to see this to believe this. That's another point. Movies like this, like this one and White Zombie, it was no longer possible to make them two, three years later. If you want to see how this censorship worked in Hollywood, take, there are a couple of unique examples. For example, uh, you know, maybe you know it, John Ford's kitschy classic with Clark Gable, Ava Gardner, Grace Kelly, uh, uh, what takes place in Africa, Mogambo, Mogambo, yes. It is Mogambo, I think, yes. Uh, stupid, it doesn't matter. The point is he is uh, torn between a uh, 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 frustrated English lady who wants to seduce him and an honest prostitute, but the point is this one, that this is a remake of an earlier, from early 30s, early talkie by John Ford, called Red Dust, I think, the original version. And how much more sexually and so on explicit is the early one? And here I'm almost becoming a partisan of some general uh, uh, cultural development theory, because it's incredible to what extent the development in Soviet Union and in United States in cinema industry run parallel. In both countries, late 20s, maybe a couple of years, 31, 32, were relatively open, sexually much more explicit, and so on and so on. In United States, we have many examples, not, uh, for example, another example would be Ernest Lubitsch, he's the greatest almost, I think that if I were to choose at the gunpoint. 
I would even put Lubitsch above Alfred Hitchcock and so on. His Trouble in Paradise, the absolute masterpiece of 32, which was considered so subversive that it wasn't shown till late 80s again. So, what I want to say is that, uh, and also in Soviet Union, look at Alexander Dovzhenko's classic, The Earth. When the hero is killed, you see his wife crying there, running around the room, totally naked for five minutes and so on. Or another masterpiece, I forgot who is the director of wrong figures, I forgot the title, Bad for Two or whatever. It's the story of a couple, young couple in suburbs of Moscow, I don't know where, and then a friend comes to live with them, and basically a love triangle develops, the wife is in love with both of them and sleeps with both of them. And then at the end, she gets pregnant and they don't know who the father is and both men are opportunistic and want her, both husband and lover, want her to uh, make an abortion. And she says, no, I want my child and runs away from both of them. It's incredible. This is where the movies made there. And then what is so interesting is how the same type of censorship did strike with early 30s in both countries. Of course, generally, it was much harsher. I'm not, I'm not those cheap libertarian leftists who play United States and Stalinist Soviet Union, the same oppression or whatever. Of course, it was infinitely worse. But it's interesting where Hollywood was worse. You know, the, this case code, it's so interesting, for example, and you can check it if you don't believe me, considering sexuality. Do you know that, for example, uh, homosexuality was not only prohibited to be praised, but even prohibited to mention it, or prostitution? And you know what's so nice? That Hollywood developed a code, like, they allowed you to signal through certain features that someone is a prostitute or gay. Uh, the code for gay was when, let's say, this is my aggressivity towards my best friend, uh, Ed, Kadawa. Let's say I were to be walking in a Hollywood movie with Ed, and I would make, what perfume are you wearing, etc. Means he is gay. You know, this was when uh, someone noticed that a man has a perfume on, this means he's a gay. For a prostitute, it's even nicer. If somebody say, oh, where does that nice woman come from? She's from New Orleans. It means prostitute. This was the code. But another thing is much more mysterious. How, okay, the Soviet Union probably was a poor country. That's the reason. But why was, at one level, again, not to mention New Orleans, obvious stuff, that in really harsh classical Hollywood, even if you show a married couple, bed in bedroom, Beds have to be separated, and if you show them in the bedroom, they have to be fully dressed in their pyjamas and so on and so on. Which is why I give you an example. Hitchcock, remember the first scene of Hitchcock's psycho in the hotel, Marion and Janet Lee and John Gabby? You know, you see him naked above waist. Hitchcock has to thank immensely for that. It's also interesting, uh, you know what was the, where, in which scene there Hitchcock in Psycho, I wonder if you guessed, had to find most censorship. Not where you would expect it. 
shower murder or whatever, nobody cared about that. You remember at the end when uh, the sister played by Vera Miles and John Gavin, ex-fiancé of the deceased killed Marion, they enter the motel and then he or she, I forgot who, looks into the toilet bowl and finds the piece of paper, 40,000, blah, blah, which proves that Marion was there. This was an absolute prohibition in Hollywood. You are not allowed to show the toilet bowl directly. Hitchcock had to fight like crazy. Uh, they, he had to guarantee that uh, it's absolutely clean, no traces of shit, and so on and so on. <laughs> Another funny moment of censorship. I hope you all know it's now voted the greatest film of all times by sight and sound, Vertigo. The way we know Vertigo is that at the end, uh, you know, it's very ambiguous. Uh, uh, Judy falls down, Scotty stands on, on the edge of that church tower. It means he is cured of vertigo, but it can also mean he is cured because he's a living dead, totally destroyed or what. But you know that this was not the original version. Why? Because Hitchcock was under pressure, again from Hays Code, where one of the rules was that if you have a criminal committing a murder, he must be caught at the end. And you remember, in the middle of the film, Gavin Elster, the true murderer, he just disappears. So, the studio forced Hitchcock to shoot another, like literally less than one minute, where Scotty detective is again with that, the ugly girl with glasses, the woman who knows too much, Barbara Delgades, and they are listening to a radio where the voice says, Gavin Elster, the murderer, was captured in Europe, whatever. And Hitchcock did a very intelligent thing. He shot that, he showed this to the censors, and then for the white release, he simply cut the part and nobody, and nobody cared, you know. It's absolutely uh, incredible, probably because he was Hitchcock, he was able to do it. I can tell you another wonderful example of censorship, recent one. I use this, sorry, some of you were there in my classes. Did you see, and in a stupid way, I'm not saying it's a great film, I quite like it. Did you see with great American actor Ashton Kutcher, did you see Butterfly Effect? You know that the version you saw in the movie theaters is the censored one. You know, it's the guy who can travel back in the past, his life is a catastrophe, so he tries to change it again and again and everything turns wrong. The, what we saw in movie theaters was that at the end he simply changes totally his life, doesn't even meet the girl, who's like, meet the girl who he destroys and so everything is okay later. But you know what was the original version? I was shocked. I didn't know. I bought a DVD, okay, I wanted to show it to my small son, let's see it. Then I was shocked, it was too much for him. Here, at the end, Ashton Kutcher character decides to go back to one minute before he is born, still in the womb, and it showed him, like, and he strangles himself with umbilical cord inside, and so on. It's crazy, it was censored, he had only now a DVD, you get it, and so on, and so on. Okay, let me go on. So, class struggle. Again, my thesis is vampires versus zombies. I gave you already one proof why uh, this uh, white zombie. Another proof would have been today. Did you notice something? Uh, like, 
It's a crazy theory. Again, somebody already developed it in The Nation is the Big Leftist Bi-Weekly, but there is another one in these times in Chicago. I sometimes published there. A wonderful text comparing the two Lincoln movies. You remember, there were a year ago or two, Tully, it was the official Lincoln, Spielberg, and so on, and then was the one which I much prefer, Lincoln, the Vampire Killer, or whatever, you know. Of course, it's ridiculous. The idea of the second one is that Lincoln was a vampire killer, and the problem of the South Confederacy was that they made a deal with American vampires, that the vampires will fight for them, render them invincible, if southern people provide them with black blood so that vampires will not be hungry. And then it's totally ridiculous. Lincoln saved the situation by melting all the silver in state treasury, making it into silver bullets, you know, the vampires. And so Gettysburg was wrong, the true story, you know? But nonetheless, there is something refreshing to me, in the sense that in Spielberg's Lincoln, you get the official story, Washington manipulations, negotiations, but here you get all that which is, as it were, excluded from the official narrative. Violence, struggle, and so on and so on. This is, I think, for me at least, the nicest example of Lacan's statement that uh, what is excluded from the symbolic returns in the real, in the form of psychotic hallucination. That's it. What is excluded from the official narrative returns in this crazy vampires, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, again, uh, again, if you read the film against all this background, of course, it's totally ridiculous. But I think the ingenious idea is to put these two actors together, and it has to be read again against the background of uh, uh, against the background of all this, you know, opposition, zombie, the zombie character who is uh, Boris Karloff and then Bela Lugosi is the quintessential vampire character and so on and so on. And you see a quite different background here. No? So I admit that like movies like this you can enjoy them once, like these are not movies that you see ten times again and again. But admit it, it is such a weird, such a weird experience because it's already so strange to our tastes that I wonder how the people were receiving it at that period. Were they able not to laugh and because this is for me an internal problem. For example, we still like silent comedies, no? Slapstick, blah, 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 okay, you laugh there. But silent dramas, so-called serious films, there are a couple of them which are good, like there is a very good realist melodrama, is it called The Crowd or What by King Vidor? It's still a silent movie about uh, uh, a girl arrives in New York, marries a guy, unemployed, desperate. It's kind of a very good social melodrama. Vittorio De Sica loved it and proclaimed this is the first film of neorealism ahead of its time. Then one of the films which still survive, you can still watch them, although they are silent, is Fritz Lang, uh, the two parts of his Nibelungs. I was caught into it, but I wonder if we still can in, okay, Dovzhenko's The Earth, I fell into it, but
But now I will say something sinful to politically correct lovers of cinema. But let's admit it, like, okay, Potemkin, okay, but October and General Line, the old of the new, those late silent Eisensteins, I mean, they are so transparent, you cannot seriously watch them today and so on. So again, I wonder how they watch these ones, although on the other hand, again, violence and uh, horror and comedy, maybe that's why we laugh, always go to in a weird way, they go together, you know. No wonder that even today, when you have a zombie movie, you never know where you are. Is it horror or will you start laughing? But I spoke too much, so here I am, so let's pretend we live in a democracy, please. And maybe if you have some comments, I quite admit that probably you know more about all this, no? I think that you know why these movies are missing? Sorry, just this. Uh, you know who made the big revolution? You know who was Val Newton, the big produ producer in the 40s? He did some cheap movies, but excellent, where, like, his best known is the seventh victim, Cat People, the original version, and so on. What he did is a wonderful thing. He, you know, made we call this virtue out of necessity. His movies were big productions, and he used this to introduce new effects. For example, he simply didn't have time to money, sorry, to shoot properly a murder with all the cries and so on. So, for example, in one of his films, it's still so effective because he didn't have money, he shoot it like this. A child has to be killed by some monster cat, I don't know, whatever. So, a mother asks his, her small son to go to a nearby store, then the son comes back and starts to shout. And the camera remains within the apartment. You just hear the son's scratching, shouts, and then blood starts to drip beneath, you know, and it's much more effective. He invented this, and again, it was the result of necessity. I mean, it was because he didn't have money. But you know who also did this? Did you see it's a big classic now? Okay, already 20, 30 years old, but probably you know it. Blade Runner. You know that, again, what, why is it important? It introduced this apocalyptic uh, world of, you know, miss everything in decay and so on and so on. And uh, there is a nice book on Blade Runner, you read it. You know why all this mist and blur? Because he didn't have money to, 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 to build the proper sets, you know. And I love these moments, how an empirical obstacle, they didn't have money, whatever, can engender a true artistic revolution and so on. We have many other examples, like, I don't know how much you love opera, but the big revolution in opera staging was Wagner's Bayreuth in the early 50s, and they reopened it, because till 50 it wasn't allowed, it was too contaminated by Nazism. Till that time, staging a Wagner with all this Nordic mythology was the domain of this Nordic kitsch. For, for example, uh, this is a nice historical data, I wonder if you know it, I read somewhere about it, it's true. You know this idea of the Viking helmet with horns, you know that they never existed historically. They don't have even one ancient model of... You know where this was invented? In first stagings of Wagner in Bayreuth, in 1880. 
So this is the usual farmer. Then in 1950, they didn't have money. The only thing they had was uh, one of these Nazi big companies, electric, whatever, I don't know which, told them, okay, we have enough electricity and some, how you call them, strong lights, reflectors, we can give you that. So they did it with that. They put just some abstract forms like ancient rooms, stones, singers were, were dressed in like ancient Greek tunics because they didn't have money even to do proper uh, costumes and strong lights. And this became the mega revolution in staging the opera. So I like this, how, you know, a stupid empirical cause, you are out of money and so on, can, and I even be, now I will conclude with a provocation. This is my experience of, I'm not from there, but so Soviet Union and so on. That maybe even if you give to artists too much money, you know, it's not good or even too much freedom. Listen, I'm old enough to know, when there was still Soviet Union, everyone was telling, oh my God, what a creativity there must be oppressed in Russia. Wait, when communism will collapse, Oh, art will explode. Fuck you, sorry. No, it didn't. We get bullshit now, mostly, from <laughs> Soviet Union. And I was told that the great Soviet director, who was, yeah, 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 censored all the time and so on, Andrei Tarkovsky, that at the end, totally resigned, he admitted it. You know, because of censorship problems, blah, blah, he stayed in Italy. Then he did nostalgia, so-so. Then he did sacrifice because in Sweden, because he couldn't get money anywhere else, and then it was over and so on. Like his great films, Stalker, Solaris, Andrei Rublev. The paradox is that with all the terror, it was possible to get money and the privileged condition to shoot such a movie only there in, only there in Soviet Union. And the same experience, we talked about it, I think, I will tell you again something which may appear problematic, but look at three parts of Godfather. I think the first one is by far the best one. Then the problem is that Coppola was given too much freedom, you know, and then you get that confusion. But I really talk too much. Please, now I stop. What? You think I'm going to discuss now or what? What did I do to you? Did I rape your mother or what? Okay, please, go on. I, I just want to... Since you brought up this issue of censorship, um, I, I don't know if you, you know, you probably know, but, but the, when the film executives saw the, the first footage and script that Hallmark got for this film, they totally freaked out. Which one? This one? This one, Black Hat. But I think the big problem was that the skin was It was that uh, the Lugosi uh, character raised the heroine. Uh, the heroine. Lugosi, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the I am the original screen. Yeah, yeah. And the, the um, uh, heroine. So he was more evil because here he appears yeah, yeah, almost yeah. a good guy. The heroine also becomes uh, at, at different moments during the, the, the original version uh, uh, a cat, a black cat. And then, and then it ended with. Uh, the Karloff character being skinned, as you said, a lot. And they, they show a little bit more. Crawling, crawling on the ground with the skin hanging off his body and mostly <laughs> laughing. would be so, something. Yeah, yeah. So, um, one I of the things that, that you said, one of the ones you said that, that the way this works, that something gets uh, staged yeah, and yeah. repeated yeah. in this yeah. psychotic hallucination. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that, that I, I was thinking about is just the, the craziness of the link between the film and Poe's story. Uh, the black hat, 
because it's yes. loosely based yes. on the yes. story. <laughs> but they manipulate it beautifully. Yeah, and that, uh, and everybody, I think even you laughed a little bit because when that cat runs across, it's clearly just, hi, we want to make a reference to Edgar Allan Poe, you know. It's ah, except, except for what you said, right? They have, they have Polzik, it's also Poe is in the name of, of the character, but also... That's true, oh my god. But, but also true. the... Um, uh, this structure of, of this being repeated in this, this psychotic hallucination that is the post story. Where the, yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. the character mm-hmm. kills the cat, uh, it then reappears. Uh, but maybe they cat. were a little bit too late because you know, there are wonders that it was possible to do around 1930. Like, did you see that absolutely weird movie, Todd Browning Freaks? Oh my god, you should. It's really unthinkable a little bit later. It's the story of a circus unit where you have all the freaks and they play it like a guy without all the limbs who just with his mouth can lighten a cigarette and so on. You have Siamese twins, you have midgets, you have all the horrors and they form a kind of a nice alternate solidary community. Then one midget gets in love with a trapeze artist, an evil woman and she, of course, only wants to cheat him, uh, to steal the money from him, and at the end, they follow her into a garden, and then at the, in the last shot of the film, you see what they did to her. They cut her off from here down, so that she's just a kind of a weird duck-like entity and so on. It's unbelievable that it was possible to do this film. Try and see, it's incredible. You will be really shocked. So maybe they were a little bit too late, you know. But what do you know? So they really put pressure and so on and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these things are either... It's not clear from what I'm saying. There's controversy over whether or not the the scenes were actually shot Mm -hmm. and then they were cut and burned or if uh, these were just in the script and then eliminated. It's not clear. But you know, no, which is the greatest Hollywood tragedy, you know. Orson Welles, his second movie, Magnificent Ambassadors. You know why it's a tragedy? Because it was already done. It was two hours and uh, 12 minutes, I think. Then they sent Orson Welles to Brazil on purpose to do some pro-war documentary in 43 or when, and back in Hollywood, They cut it down to 88 minutes, but it's even worse because they, in these 88 minutes, you should include one or two minutes of additional shots. They did it in such a vulgar way. For example, at a certain point, the heroine leaves the lady, Anne Baxter, who loves him, and in some very nicely, the hero walks away, and we see in the back the young girl with obviously suspect that she's on the edge of breaking down, suicidal mood. But the whole point, what creates such immense tension is that precisely you don't get a close-up of her, you know. What did they did, jerks in Hollywood, exactly this. They added a brief shot of her face, tears running down and so on. I mean, they did like 20, 30 things like that. No wonder that this the original copy, which once existed, of Magnificent Andersons has such a mythical status in Hollywood that you know that even, I have it, just forgot the author, a detective novel is written on it, like there are murders in Hollywood, and then a detective investigates and found that they were all chasing somewhere it still exists, the original Magnificent Andersons. People are killing for it. I think these are two, three mega tragedies in the history of cinema that they didn't finish 
that they ruined this one, uh, I mean, uh, 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 that they ruined uh, 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 this one, uh, uh, plus tradition uh, understands, plus in Soviet Union, of course, that Eisenstein was not able to finish uh, Ivan, even the terrible tree. I mean, we know the scenario, it would have been breathtaking, part three, no? But it's interesting, do, do we have, what is, did you Wikipedia, Google it, or do you know something more? Google, no. if I may inquire. No, I, I read it many years ago in relation to the post, or... Ah, that's no, your connection. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that's... No, no, because, uh, again, what I'm trying to decide is, but probably it would be, would it have been better? Okay, it would be maybe a little bit more vulgar, but still, probably they wouldn't show too much, it would still be discreet. So it is a tragedy. I think that it would have been better because, you know, even if this movie is, even if at that time they were making much shorter movies, but not so short. So I think that probably the this one is what? One hour and ten, I think, something around that. And probably they did plan it at least one hour twenty-five, as it is usual with these uh, old horrors and so on and so on. But I will Google it tonight after what you told me. I would really like to, to know this. So, um, I was, I've never seen the movie before. And I was actually, Don't I was, kill yourself yeah. for it. Like, <laughs> and I hope you will not see it again. At least. <laughs> yeah. and, but I was expecting more of, of the cat, obviously. More like the cat to come back, especially with you picking the movie. Maybe as like a vehicle for repetition or, or something. Uh, no, you even forgot the cat. But yeah, it turns out the cat is is forgotten. So we're, we're no. What shocked me when I saw the movie first is when you see the modern villa there. Yeah. You know, there. Where you expect the vertical? Yeah, yeah, whatever. Some shitty like uh, Norman Bates' mother, you know, gothic bullshit there, you know. <laughs> it's really psycho turned around, no? Because in psycho architectural, I always claim that psycho is a, Hitchcock's psycho is a great movie about architecture, no? It's all, uh, Norman Bates' madness is that he is torn between two architectures, modern, straight, uh, linear, motel and the gothic house up there, you know. So I, even if some of you saw that the volume that I edited, everything you wanted to know about Lacombe, but didn't there, you asked Hitchcock, I even said that if you look at Norman Bates as a madman, to cure it of his madness would be to turn this modernist architectural tension, gothic house, vertical, horizontal motel, into postmodern pastiche, where you would have a modern house with all those, you know, ornaments. If you would bring together the two into one, then maybe Norman Bates wouldn't have to kill you. No, he wouldn't be. Sorry, I interrupted. You. No. <laughs> um. But do you know that also? Sorry, I was going there. Do you know how how well aware Hitchcock was about uh, about? Class in, cla in painting visual origins. I read this in a book and I even at some Hitchcock conference in New York, it's already 15 years ago, for a moment I've spoken with Pat, Patricia Hitchcock. 
I didn't like her because her line was, don't take my father too seriously, it's just fun, just amusement, and so on. It's not as simple as that. But uh, I asked her and she confirmed this, that uh, Psycho, you know that he consciously referred to, no? The, the, the model there is, uh, model for both of them is uh, Edward Cocker, no? Mother's House is a famous painting house by the railroad, <coughs> and you know, motel is, you know, all those lonely women in motels and so on and so on, and you find quite often this in Hitchcock. I mean, Hitchcock was a little bit like Bill Clinton. I didn't have special love for Bill Clinton, but I met a guy who knew him, blah, 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 and told me that, and also some other professors who knew him at school told me this, that Bill Clinton was privately much more educated. I mean, knew American literature, he knew whole pages of William Faulkner, Kudrysak, but he was afraid to show this so that he would be disqualified as true intellectual and so on. And there was a little bit of this in Hitchcock. He was much more educated privately. I, I interrupted you two times, so now I would. Yeah. It's, it's kind of going back to the period, but just the question of preservation and time in the movie. Um, what do you mean by this? Because Be more specific. Often the, well, the, the modern architecture serves as this place where, where time doesn't really exist. It's like an eternal interior. Um, and the shot, the first shot that we see from the outside is the only time we see the outside. It's just abstract and it's mm -hmm. a few lines. Um, but it turns out that in the basement of this, there's this this suspension of time. These women in yeah, outside yeah, yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm trying to connect that. But what is so interesting when you read it, right, isn't it that precisely this suspension of time is linked to extreme modernity? Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, that's the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. But, but then also there are these expressionist things that are going on, and yeah, I'm not sure how to bring those two together. Yeah, obviously, like there must have been that, uh, everybody knows, yes, that, uh, like, all that, those horror movies, this, the origin is German expressionism and so on, so even if they are not uh, Germans and so Although, you know, the interesting would be to say to what extent it is effectively, like, German expressionism reimagined through the through the American eyes, and I don't mean this as dismissing the United States as vulgar and tired of America bashing. I think that if anything, we in Europe we are much lower now than you. I mean, Europe is not turning into an anti-immigrant racist head more and more. I'm pessimist about Europe. But what I wanted, I think that uh, there is no true historicity without this moment of eternity and immobility. And one, should be, one should be opposed here to this simplistic stupidity of oh, everything changes, blah, blah. No, no, true dialectics means precisely what Benjamin called with a wonderful term dialectic in Stillstand, no? The, in suspense, suspension, how do you translate this? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, this moment of, in a way, immobilization in the sense of a direct shortcut between present and past, no longer linear development. That's the whole Benjaminian idea about revolution, scout. In the revolution today, it's as if 
all past failed revolution are directly echoed, not in this evolutionary sense and so on and so on, you know. The, no, I agree with you, I'm just not good enough, I must admit it, this, this aspect of temporality is not something that I, but I should have developed much further. But on the other hand, you know where I like to think about it? Like, I was always afraid, and I may share with you a weird art experience. I mean, sorry, in how I experience art. From when I was a child, I was always afraid of statues. And this is why I remember as a child, I visited some big cities, and in some of them, more in Europe than in the United States, you have, you know, on those promenades where people are selling things, how do you call this? There must be a term. People who, to get some money, play statues, you know. They are in some dress and colored face and step, you know. And then only you give them some money, they go to you or whatever. And there is some truth in it. I always, when I saw a statue, I had this maybe childish idea that that there is life there, but it's frozen in an infinite pain. Which is why I immediately understood this idea, you know, statues which uh, start to bleed and so on. Like that this horror of immobilization, as it were, uh, breaks and so on. You know, this is what always... And now you will say this is naive, you know. But no, but I think part of the archetypal strength of statues is precisely that they are immobilized movement, in a way. And I like this how in our daily you know, the crazy way that something that you know it's not true, it's your fantasy, can nonetheless structure your experience of reality. Like, let me tell you a truly dirty story. I remember from my youth, no, it will not be embarrassingly dirty, don't be afraid of it. I remember when I was young, parents were telling me, you know, this was six years ago, so it was still that stupid time, but parents were telling me, you know, where do people come from, a stork is bringing them, and so on and so on. Then, a couple of years later, when I was seven, eight, I learned, uh, uh, you fuck, and so on, no population, but still, I didn't want to give up the stork theory, you know? Because I had this vulgar mind, you know, like, fucking who so vulgar, two bodies uh, uh, sweating. How can something as beautiful as a child emerge from the 30 act of population? So, you must congratulate it. I invented a totally crazy theory, Prima, which is that only in an intermediate way, copulation produces children. That you copulate, make love to a woman, and storks are observing us. <laughs> and you do it nicely as a present, as a reward, stork brings you a child. Admit it, it's a nice theory. I had another wonderful kindish fantasy. When I learned that nonetheless sperm, blah, blah, for a long time, I had a theory that you have to copulate like hundreds of times, that you know, each time you copulate, you, today you copulate for the eye, then for the finger, then for that, you know. 
And it's a beautiful theory in the way. You take your life, oh darling, for our kid, what we'll be doing today, the eye, the ears, or whatever, you know. I love this totally crazy theory. Sorry, they talk too much. Michael, they talk too much. Okay. <laughs> now, you did your beauty. You talked then. You, as a representative of, you were the Stalin nomenclatura, whatever, no? Working class, ordinary people. <laughs> No, but you know, sorry, you know that, but although we can have nostalgic attachment to these movies, but you know that sometimes later remakes, not so much horror or science fiction, are not necessarily worse. For example, we know that there are, I know, at least four versions of invasions of the body snatchers. The first, black and white. But then I always preferred the second one, Philip Kaufman's with Donald Sutherland, already 30 years, 40 years old, which uh, has an incredibly thick soundtrack. That moment when the body snatchers, snatchers invite you or occupy you like with all the slimy, humid stuff, it is rendered in such a wonderful vocal way. So again, I don't buy this myth that you know, it's so snobbish for me that original version is always better and remakes are. I talk too much, you. Oh, um, I was just going to say that uh, well, earlier you were talking about um, time, temporality, and, and time to psychology. Yep. So the space here, you know, at first it's a fort, and, and then we learn that it still is the fort underneath. Yep. And then it's also the Satanist temple. Yep. And then at the same time, it's referred to as a mental hospital. Which I thought was really interesting when the when the our, our American hero refers to it as a mental hospital. So it's kind of like the site of this this one character, this architect's mm. psychopathy, and that's always the technology that the architects are always sick and crazy in the head, and the building and the site is always the materialization of their insanity or their egoism. And yeah, yeah. as an architect, I find that a, like it's, it's a, always a little bit sad to always see that typology play out. When when do architects ever get to be? Not crazy. Yeah, maybe they are not crazy, but what if society is crazy? For example, it's clear that in Soviet Union, it was not the architect's <laughs> madness, but it is so clear how the shifts in architecture, you know, copied or referred to social shifts and so on. For example, you can see so clearly the rise of Stalin with the change from this modernism of the 20s to that gothic, we call it wedding cake architecture or whatever, no? Although, you know, I wonder, you can tell me, you probably know more about history of the architecture than me, but I read somewhere that, you know, those like Lomonosov University or House of Culture in Warsaw, that Stalinist speech, that this, the origin of this is United States. Already the Bolsheviks in the 20s were terribly fascinated by Americans, even Stalin. When in the late 20s they asked Stalin, what's your image of an ideal communist? He said, the one who combines Russian stubborn dedication with American practical spirit. So even in the 20s, Henry Ford, Ford, serial, I mean, uh, production of cars, was almost evoked in sacred terms as a god in Soviet Union. 
you know. So what I want to say is that this mutual influence between Hollywood and Soviet Union was incredible. For example, Boris Shumyatsky, who was in mid-30s the boss of Soviet cinema industry and uh, arch enemy of Eisenstein, incidentally. You know that he visited Hollywood and was absolutely fascinated by Hollywood. You know why? Because he said, you know what fascinated him is this totally planned procedure. You have division of labor. You have people who elaborate plots, people who add jokes, dialogue, and so on. This totally rational division of labor, everything planned. He, for him, Hollywood was organized like Soviet Union should have been, you know. But there is, do you know it or not, a wonderful example, it's not a joke, of reverse influence. You know, of course, uh, King Kong, the original version, the ape on the Statue of Liberty. You know what's the origin of this image? The producers visited Soviet Union three years before. They contacted some uh, 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 modernist architects, and they were shown, you know, that famous idea, which was never realized, Palace of Soviets with Lenin's statue on the top. And they said, oh, exchange Lenin with ape, we get the basic it's direct Soviet influence, that, that image, no? But when you think about monstrosity, you know, uh, what always surprised me in architecture is how, how directly, how things that you cannot say directly in explicit political discourse, you not only were allowed to say them, but it was obligatory, for example, we all know that Stalinism was some kind of extreme society of domination, a kind of neo-feudal, oppressive society. If you say this publicly, you, well, this was probably the last thing you said, you disappeared. But the whole architecture immediately evokes this kind of heavy oppression and so on and so on. And you had to do it like that. And so it's really a question how much freedom even architects had there, because do you know the anecdote which I checked with my Russian friends is a true one, just to give you an idea of the madness of late 30s in Soviet Union. For some representative, I forgot which building in Moscow, one of the international, I don't know what, they proposed to Stalin two two projects. One was a little bit more modernist, the other one a little bit more gothic and so on, and they waited for his decision. Obviously Stalin was confused and signed his name of approval, I approve it, Stalin, on both of them. And they were so afraid, they were afraid to disappoint him, but they were also afraid to ask him again, to annoy him. So what they did is a monstrous combination. The front side of the building, one style, the back side, the other one, simply because they were afraid to, afraid to ask Stalin and so on and so on. But nonetheless, I think, again, what fascinates me so much in Stalinist architecture is all the oppressiveness, blah, blah, is out there. I mean, you walk in the Stalinist Moscow and you see immediately where you are. But you know what's an even higher paradox? It's that not only me, but 
all my friends, many of them were, some of them even in Soviet psychiatric asylum victims, but if you ask them what type of architecture in Moscow you like, from all of them I got the answer, this Stalinist kitsch baroque, you know. Khrushchev modernism is already this fake, not this, you know, concrete and glass boring. Later it's kitsch, before it's poverty, old Moscow, it's mysterious how, not only this, you know, this Stalinist baroque like Lomonosov University. You know that now this is the latest fashion for the rich, nouveau rich there, I've seen them. They built already about 10 skyscrapers, all kind of, we would have called them condominiums, condominiums, and that was so stupid, incidentally. You know, what was my idea, my obscenity, when I first, somebody showed me, oh, this is a condominium. I said, oh, do you get condoms free there? Okay, that's my problem. <laughs> what I want to say is that, do you know that they built now already 10 copies of this Stalinist Baroque with inside extremely expensive apartments for, for the newly rich and so on and so on. It's crazy, which is why I would like to know more about architecture. I did one piece, I think it's my living in the end times or whatever, and I felt very bad. I think I was more or less uh, bluffing there. No, I focused on that phenomenon which always fascinated me. I hate them. You know this, uh, how do you call them? Multifunctional amusement center, a museum, which is at the same time a cafeteria or that, and this is held as a meeting place, new community, but I think there is always a cupola, it's like, I think mean, this is ideology that it's purest. Which is why this may disappoint you. I even have serious doubts in contrast to some Marxist like my friend Fred Jameson, who has some kind of a crush on Frank Gehry, you know. I think Frank Gehry began well with those houses, irrogated, uh, sorry, uh, corrugated iron or whatever, but then all this uh, Bilbao stuff and so on, you know, like, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying I wouldn't sell my mother into slavery for that one. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, 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 I hate this when something is presented as opening to the people, everybody mingles there and so on, but it's really a very exclusive place. It's, it's the exact opposite. No, do you think that does it, don't you think that has to do more with the way the space is used and less with sort of the physical configuration? I don't think that the, the Stalinist architecture is oppressive by nature. I think oppressive things happen there. It was used in oppressive ways, but if, if you put it in, I don't know, central Paris, it would take on a whole different... Oh. Yeah, that's a very good question, yes, because you know in what sense? Because I'm well aware of what you are saying. For example, for me, the musical counterpoint to it is Dmitry Shostakovich. Today he's celebrated as the great dissident composer and so on and so on. But fuck it. I mean, uh, if you look closely, you know, like they say that some of his pieces, they were a secret cry protest against Stalinist oppression and so on. Well, fuck it, he got all the highest Stalin prizes, you know, exactly for that. So were they really so stupid, the bureaucrats, that they didn't know this, and so on, and so on. But none, I wonder, basically, I tend to agree with you for one simple reason, because I absolutely love that kitschy architecture, you know, that 
Stalinist oppressive and so on and so on. But uh, and I was always for kids. I had this may amuse you. I really I'm sorry for that my talk. Once I was at an architectural conference in Australia some five, six, seven years ago. And there was a guy there who wanted to fascinate us what should be the true people's architecture and presented two pipes, water pipes. One, this mega kitschy one from an Arab shake, all in gold with pearls twisted. And another like this, you know, metal shining, simple one. And he said, you see, this is the true one, the other is kitsch. No. And then I exploded. And surprisingly, <coughs> large majority of people then supported me. I said, but did you ever visit real poor people? It's only the very rich that like this kind of a minimalist functionality. Go to a favela in Sao Paulo or where. Poor people love kitsch, even if it's very cheap. And with poor people here, I love kitsch. I mean, I was, I got some special offer, I'm not so rich, but I was, ha ha ha. You know, Dubai, Bourgelard, that one. I was there. I got the cheapest room. It's just 220 square meters, not just two floors and so on. But it's incredible kick. And fuck it, I enjoyed it, you know. It's a little bit disappointment because, you know, you discover there that this is not the hotel for the truly rich. But it's the popular image of truly rich, you know. Because, for example, you already have tours there. You pay $50, you can see a little bit of it. My God, where the truly rich are, you don't get tours there to, to see how they live, you know, and so on. But uh, what I'm trying to say is that I do believe in social mediation, social content. But I agree with you, it's much more mediated. What do I mean by this? For example, in Yeltsin years, when so, social situation, poverty was desperate in Russia, ex-Soviet Union. Somebody told me that there is an opposition at the level of how they dress between pros prostitutes and ordinary women. Ordinary women dress like prostitutes because in a cheap way they want to be attractive. Prostitute dressed a little bit like expensive, ordinary business suites and so on and so on. So you know, like, there is a difference, but it's almost inverted. It's not direct mirroring, where prostitutes dress like prostitutes and ordinary women dress like or whatever. It's much more, it, it's much more complicated. And the other argument would have been, it's easy to make fun of Stalinist Baroque. But fuck it, go to New York, then where is it on? 7th Avenue or 8th, the old post office, the big one. Or even some buildings, or my favorite building <coughs> in London, of course, that uh, University Senate House, which is obviously has for us maybe false totalitarian connotations. They are confirmed by the fact, you know, when Germans planned the invasion of England in 39. In their plans, Senate building would be the like it's so much the German headquarters, the German occupation. No, but it's my favorite, and we all know the story. Uh, as video called George Orwell, this Senate was the model for the Ministry of Truth in 1984, and so on and so on. But what I wanted to say is how in the 30s it was this Roosevelt big projects, Germany, even England. It wasn't just a Soviet phenomenon, this kind of uh, gothic monumentalism. 
So I tend to agree with you here, yes, that it is like, it was perceived like that because of, I wouldn't say so narrowly because things happened there. I would rather, if you agree, put it in a slightly more abstract way. The structure of the building into the structure of the building, the social relations of power were simply projected. No, it was that, but I agree with you that I wouldn't, for that reason, condemn that form as such. It's, it's more complex. I never was for this direct, uh, whatever, mirroring, you know, like if it's an oppressive house, who horrible things go, go there, uh, and, and so on and so on, you know. Lucky, that's life. Did you see some of you, I haven't yet 300, but the other one, this the new one, work. Uh, 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 how do you call it? See the new 300. No, because I like this speech. You didn't. No. Sorry? Is it happening? No, it's already two, three weeks. No, it was relatively a flop. No, I must tell you that I half liked, uh, not really, but Noah. You know what? It's not what I expected, a stupid biblical myth. It's much more complicated, even ambiguous, and so on. You know? Like, Noah is half crazy, you just wait when he will be condemned as a fundamentalist or whatever. It's, 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 it's an interest. I'm not saying it's a great feeling, it's stupid. But it's, it's interesting. I mean. I'm fascinated by the fact that you keep on mentioning all of the like, media movies, all of the stupid movies, or like the not so great movies. Like, yeah, but okay, movie. okay, but you know, I'm here not a cynic, but I think there can also be popular movies which are great. And believe me, there can be art movies which we respect because we are not ready to admit that they are totally boring bullshit. For example, Ingmar Bergman. Yeah, some of his, I love silence. You know where two women and a child come to something, blah, blah, blah. But already, persona, if you ask me, is pure bluff. Cries and whispers, I become Goebbels there. Burn it in public, you know, a lot of bluffing is going there. So, no, or even so much celebrated some of those Ingrid Bergman or Cellini movies. No, I think they're absolutely overestimated. You know, it's not so simple. It's not so simple. I even think, although I wrote a criticism of it, I think it's a reactionary film, but it has an interesting complex structure, the last Batman Dark Knight Rises or whatever. You know, basically it's a negative utopia, the dream of Wall Street taking over, Manhattan becoming a Soviet Republic and so on. And it has some beautiful detailed moments. For example, did you notice that the only true passionate love is not between Batman and, uh, who is there, uh, Anne Hathaway, I don't know what. It's between, how is he called? something with B, the big bad guy and that girl, Marion Cotillard, ex Edith Piaf, who, you know, because he was disfigured because of helping her and so on and so on. So even if in a very traditional, conservative, liberal, Dickensian way, it condemns the revolution, but it's more ambiguous, you know, it has certain wealth. This is why things, uh, I mean, it's much better than, sorry, I forgot even which one got the, ah, 12 years in slavery. I mean, I'm absolutely, don't misunderstand me. 
form absolutely not only against slavery but to blah 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 pay more for example i think like everyone does that the 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 great novel is uh, beloved i'm totally for beloved unfortunately the movie in, but i think that 12 years of slavery i absolutely don't like it's so patronizingly politically correct and so on and so on something is wrong something is a fake with that you know i would almost prefer although i didn't like them american hustle of some of the others to get it but it was clear that it will not be possible you know gravity you cannot give it to a spanish guy just there it was so clear structurally that for all this politically correct reasoning blah blah only 12 years of slavery can uh, can get it no it's very sad because what i claim is that many commercial movies were better no 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 i do have my art tastes for example i don't know did you see last frontier melancholia okay. i do love that one and i don't think it's simply a pessimist movie it simply affected me i so fully naively identified with it i think europe now has frontier haneke the austrian some great directors and so on and so on so no 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 i absolutely not playing this cheap game who popular cinema i just saying don't trust all that is presented as art cinema you know or you know who i really like and it in a way deals also with your stuff architecture because it's about the city being drowned i don't know how to pronounce his name the chinese guy who did still life and many others jia jacques something like that still life absolute masterpiece it's like you know it's a story of two couples looking for each other in one of these for us for the chinese small cities for us normal cities half a million city which because of that three gorges then whatever was slowly the water is raising and it's such a beautiful film breathtaking and it is an art film so you know what's my dream chinese are now making such good big medieval fighting spectacles like did you see of uh Jiang Yimou did you see for example the hero house of the flying daggers curse of the yellow flower so you know what is my dream it's a nice and uh, that now we have all these protests we want small art houses to survive so that we don't just see hollywood block uh, blockbusters but also modern movies my dream is can you imagine maybe the world in 30 40 years where Chinese will dominate with their own commercial blockbusters and then students professor like you will write a letter give us some small art films where we can see american art films we have enough of these chinese blockbusters so what and so on i think they may they may succeed you know and this is the saddest story this director jean kimo he started well with some early hard dissident movies and then basically he sold himself to the regime you know what was his lowest point he organized the spectacle for olympics and then he went even lower and organized the spectacle the parade for the, i don't know 60 years of red army or whatever i don't know what <coughs> now he's trying to move back a little bit but he i think the other guy gial junker whatever he and some others are really Are really the hope the hope of it no where is are you are there are you cutting my 
Dann kommen dann Stalin da jetzt gegen die Schleine. Thank you very much. I'm sorry if I Thanks for coming. We do have some food. Ah, well. oh, yeah, maybe it's starting to improve your Thank you. 